Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. I'm your host, Victor. And in today's episode, I'll be primarily breaking down the most recent episode of Silo, the Apple TV Plus science fiction series, an episode called Flame Keepers. Just a quick reminder that I published a recap and review episode of the first six episodes of the show just last week. And earlier this week, published a preview episode of Black Mirror, which we'll be covering next week in this same time slot. I assume we'll probably be covering Silo and my initial reaction to the new Black Mirror series coming to Netflix in less than a week. So stay tuned for all of that and catch up on any of our back catalog episodes, whether that be Black Mirror or, of course, recently just recapping the series finale of Succession, as well as Barry, the season finale of Yellow Jackets, and before that, The Last of Us, White Lotus, Your Honor, House of the Dragon, many shows in our back catalog if you'd like to catch up on shows you may have already watched or maybe are catching up on now. It is the doldrums of summer, or at least of June, and I mean, July looks pretty barren as well. Maybe it's time to catch up on things you haven't been watching before, or maybe to go check out some movies in the movie theater. Something I recently watched in the movie theater is the new Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse film. Now, I love the first Spider-Man Spider-Verse movie. My daughter was probably too young to see it, but but happened to watch it at a birthday party and immediately fell in love with it. We had to purchase it so that she could watch it at home. And I had already seen it in the theater and was completely blown away by it for at least the last 20 years, probably 25 at this point. Computer animation has been pigeonholed into a certain style popularized by the Pixar films. And when you think about it, whether it's DreamWorks, whether it's Universal with the Minions and their 3D animation style, Pixar really created this particular style and everyone has just basically followed suit. And then suddenly came this new Spider-Verse movie produced by Lord and Miller. And it really took the comic book panel aesthetic to the screen, but it was still 3D. It was just really dazzling to me, just a new style, which was easy to read and apparently easy to read for non-comic book readers as well. I was a casual comic book reader when I was younger, really just into Batman and really got into Batman around the time of that first Tim Burton film. Never became a hardcore comics reader, but here was a film that gained mainstream success internationally even, and so rooted in this cartoon comic book style. And now here we are with the sequel, a direct sequel to that film, which expands even further into this comic book storytelling and visualization. All this is to say that that first Spider-Verse movie was transformative and I loved it. And it's still one of my absolute favorite films of the past few years. So my expectations were very, very high for this film. And it's two hours and 15 minutes long, the new one, Across the Spider-Verse. And what I can say is for that first hour or so, I was completely blown away. Everything I loved about the previous film was there, and more so, the emotion, the style, the comedy, this incredible ability to be overwhelmingly frenetic, and then being able to slow down and have these very emotional interactions between Miles and his parents. And really, as a parent, it's something I really appreciated. As our children grow up, we struggle to help them get through all their growing pains. And of course, we empathize with it also. And the film is just incredible. It's even more so in this film than the previous. Incredible how it allows you to both be the frustrated teenager who wants to be taken seriously and also the parent who's so concerned 
it's so open-hearted, it can embrace both of these perspectives in the same scene. It's a remarkable feat, dot, 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 <laughs> for the first hour of this film or so. Has a great villain, Jason Schwartzman, providing the voice. I'm always a fan of seeing him or hearing him in this case. And I'm just catching up on season two of The Righteous Gemstones, anticipating that series returning next week. And very fun to see him there as well. And this villain is hilarious and inept at the beginning of the film, and then evolves into something truly terrifying <laughs> by that midpoint or near midpoint of the film. And then I have some issues with the back half of the film. It's still worth seeing. It still has incredible visualization. Everything that was fun about the beginning of the film is still there, but the familial part of it starts to fall away. It gets overpacked with too many cartoonish Easter eggs, which it has a blast with. I'm sure hardcore fans of the comics will love all of this. For me, as a more casual fan, it was a little too much, but I was still along for the ride. And my biggest criticism I would make of the film is really where it ends. It sets up a dilemma, which I will, will not spoil here, by the way, but it sets up a dilemma, which is truly fascinating when you get to the end of the film, but it feels like it takes a very long time to set that up. And then really, it just leaves us hanging on this dilemma. Now, the end of this film, it's really basically two parts to a film, is coming in less than a year. It's coming next spring. So it's not a very long time to wait. And it is still, from every technical way, an incredible achievement. I just personally think like it's not rewatchable in its current form. I'm not saying this would not be rewatchable in the future once the final chapter is available. I'm just saying that my daughter and I have watched that first film over and over again. It is so perfectly calibrated to have this incredible emotional punch at the end. And this one just doesn't have any of that because it's the middle of the film. It's the two towers. If you know, if you want to align it with the Lord of the Rings trilogy, whereas it is all setting up the third film, the final film. But I have to say that I love the two towers. It's my favorite of those three films. This somehow, maybe it wanted to, but it doesn't quite land that pause in the story, let's say, a satisfying pause. It just kind of leaves everything there. And it really just feels like it's setting up that third film. So it's beautiful. It's incredibly well-made, great performances all around. It's technically probably even more impressive than the previous film, but I probably would not rewatch this on its own. I may very well watch it repeatedly once the third film is available, but I just don't feel it satisfies in the way that first film did. But it has an incredibly high threshold to meet. And uh, my final opinion of this whole trilogy of films or whether these last two films are as satisfying as the first, really dependent on that third film. As it is, it's not really standalone, but what is there is exceptionally well-made. Before we get into the breakdown of Silo, I have a few recommendations that you may want to track down if you haven't seen these films already. Considering Silo's totalitarian society, I thought of a few films that you may want to catch up with. The first one is THX 1138, a film that was supposed to be adapted into a film recently, and now actually there's rumors that it's going to be made into a TV series. But this film, for those who do not know, is from 1971, over 50 years old now, and it's actually George Lucas of Star Wars fame, George Lucas's first directorial effort. I believe this was his thesis film in school that was expanded to a feature length and has quite the impressive cast, considering <laughs> its meager beginnings. Robert Duvall, and Donald Pleasance. And in this film, people live underground. They take drugs every single day to control their emotions. 
emotions can cause instability in the society. And then what starts to happen when people start to break away from those strictures imposed by this totalitarian government, which keeps things peaceful, but inhuman. This one, I believe, is not available to stream anywhere, <laughs> not even at Canopy or Hoopla, these library apps. But do check your library. I did happen to find it at on Blu-ray at my local library. So check your library or rent it if you're curious about that. You want to see Lucas's first film before Star Wars. And of course, before Star Wars, he had the huge success of American Graffiti. This is before all of that, 1971. But incredibly influential to most of the dystopian films that we've seen in the past decades. And once again, that's called THX1138. Another film I thought of was the absolutely ridiculous but entertaining and incredibly expensive film called The Island from 2005, starring Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson and directed by Michael Bay. And this film is about a group of people who live on this island in luxury, basically a giant spa they live in. But there is a dark secret, which I won't spoil here, but I'm pretty sure the trailer gives it away. So I'm not sure why they gave it away in the trailer, since it is kind of a mystery in the context of the film. But bad stuff is happening, and these people start to think that there's something more going on here in the society that they're living in. And what ensues is the mystery unraveling and crazy, over-the-top special effects and action sequences, as you would expect in a Michael Bay film. And it is very trashy, and uh, but it is fun especially if you like Michael Bay. I wish it engaged a little bit more with its big ideas. It just becomes a cheesy action film by the end. But once again, if you enjoy action and you like these sci-fi concepts, this one's not bad. <laughs> and by Michael Bay standards, it's pretty good. Something that I can recommend way more enthusiastically and is available to stream everywhere, or at least on Tubi and all of Tubi's spinoffs, there's all these other secondary similar platforms, but definitely on Tubi, is the film Gattaca from 1997, starring Ethan Hawke, Uma Thurman, Jude Law, and directed by Andrew Nichol, and also wrote the screenplay for the truly excellent The Truman Show as well, the Jim Carrey film. And in this film, we live in a future society where who can reproduce is controlled by the government. Anybody that has any kind of genetic deficiency is not allowed to reproduce. And it's this idea of, of forcing society to evolve based on genetic purity, which is a chilling idea. But beautifully realized here in the film, and Ethan Hawke is someone who was born illegally, his parents had reproduced the normal way, and has to live incognito as one of these genetically pure people. This includes having to borrow someone else's DNA. And he starts a relationship with Uma Thurman, which exposes him. He's been living a very solitary life to protect his identity, and this relationship with her threatens to expose everything. Anyway, this is a great film, a beautiful film very highly recommended. Also made on relatively small budget and a very impressive, for anybody who's ever wanted to make a film, very impressive how they can hint at a more technologically advanced society on a very small budget, relatively small budget. And once again, that film is called Gattaca, and it's truly a classic. If you haven't caught up with it, I think it's kind of a forgotten classic. So if you haven't caught up with that one, definitely check that out. So that leads us to, finally, the most recent episode of Silo. We have just three episodes to go. And this episode, once again, called The Flame Keepers. So who are the Flame Keepers? We find out that there are some older citizens here in the silo who know about the world before, and they are keeping the flame alive. They have the Flame Keepers by preserving some of these artifacts and, I assume, preserving some of the stories and the history of the world before. 
There's many plot revelations here, many of these things which I suspected previously. Some of them are new mysteries that I'm not certain how to read, certain things we've seen in this episode. And it is pretty clunky how, how this information is being delivered to us. But it does set up a pretty tense, I would assume, a pretty tense final three episodes. This is a digression here, but I really watched this episode and I think oftentimes there's a need to trim down the budget or maybe you plan to have an episode where you can scale back the budget. And this really feels like one of those episodes where you could really shoot all of this in a couple of rooms. <laughs> the cast is very small. <laughs> and uh, so this is maybe the cheapest episode they've had here on the show. You can imagine shooting this almost like as a stage play, although with very detailed sets. So the episode begins with this character, Gloria, and she's sitting on a beach and she sees her husband and her daughter. She sees the ocean. And then we see a nurse approaching and injects Gloria with some medicine that we assume is either suppressing her memories or just keeping her mind foggy. And I immediately have questions here. In the previously on scenes, we had this moment where George says the big, the biggest mystery is what if everything you believe is a lie? What if everybody you know is lying to you? So we can read this scene with Gloria as she's fantasizing about being by the beach. She actually says here in a bit dialogue, she asks, where is the where has the water gone? So the question is, was she there at the beach with her family? If that's the case, then even if that happened when she was a young woman, not only has the world not been in this condition for the 100 or 200 or 300 years that they supposedly claim it has been, and I'm extrapolating 300 years there because they're saying this rebellion happened 144 years ago. So then we assume that the culture already existed before then. So maybe you know decades or a hundred years before then. So if we believe all that, then how could she have any memories of what happened on the outside? So if she's having memories, then theoretically other older folks would have these memories as well. Meanwhile, Juliet picking up immediately from last week's episode is reading through that book. This is the Georgia travel book for children. And she sees some names written on the inside cover. Of course, there's George. But there's another name here, Gloria. And this is a little uh, yada, yada, yada here, a little. She happens to have this folder pertaining to Gloria. I guess she has it as part of the case file around Allison's uh, because she was Allison's um, pregnancy counselor. So I guess that's why she's there. And immediately this makes her ears perk up. I mean, I have to assume there's other Gloria's there, but whatever. <laughs> it is the Gloria that is at attached to this case. Importantly, she's being observed by these janitors or these people who work behind the scenes here we discovered last episode. And I don't know if I mentioned this in the recap last week, but I was wondering who's really pulling the strings here. On the one hand, it could be Bernard. Bernard, obviously, is the head of IT. Would make sense that he's the man behind the curtain. But then I also suspected Sims because he was in that room with the judge last week, and it seemed like she was intimidated by him, like literally cowering from him. So it made me wonder, was he actually the one that everyone answers to, or was he perhaps just the enforcer for IT, for example? That's still a possibility, by the way, now that I'm saying it out loud. But it seems like Sims is the real power here. And of course, at the end of last week, there was a conversation of, we have to wake him up. He needs to see this. And of course, it turns out Sims indeed is that person that they were waking up and bringing to show Juliet's progress. They ask him, should we arrest her? And Sims says, no, let's just keep an eye on her. The next day, Juliet discovers that Gloria is in a long-term medical facility. Billings arrives. He has some messages for her, one being that 
There was an apology that maintenance had broken the vase in her apartment. Of course, we discover over the course of this episode that the mirror is how they spy on her. So of course, they broke the vase so that they could take down the flowers and see what she was up to. And also the mayor, the acting mayor, Bernard now has inherited that position, wants to see Juliet. First thing, Juliet says, sure, message received. <laughs> I'm not going to do any of that. <laughs> I, I really worry about, I mean, I guess by the end of this episode, it's a moot point. But at this point, I was really considering, like, what is she doing here? Like, by ignoring all these people who she must realize at this point could be very, very dangerous to her. <laughs> she needs to play this a little more politically. Maybe that is just in her nature that she's not a very political player. But she does seem smart enough to know that she needs to pretend, at least, to be playing nice. Juliet, of course, goes to meet up with Gloria to interview her, tries to take her for a walk. A few interesting things here. Judge Meadows has issued an order so she can't be removed from the facility. And the nurse saying that she has these hallucinations. Just interesting because of the fact that, does the nurse believe this, that what she's rambling on about is just hallucinations and that she's truly mental Ill, mentally ill? Or are they familiar with this protocol that people come in and when they're trouble, they get drugged up? I'm not sure. I'm not sure how many people here are in cahoots with maintenance and the powers that be, or if they're just doing their jobs day to day and not questioning the party line. Meanwhile, Billings is spending some time with his wife who comes to visit him at work, brings his daughter there as well. And they're interrupted by a radio call that there are fights breaking out. So there's a lot of instability brewing within the silo. As I touched on last week, it seems like whoever's committing all these murders, and maybe indeed it is Sims, really should come up with other ways to discredit these witnesses or at least space these things out. Because having all these people die, especially these powerful people and liked people like the mayor, for example, dying in such quick succession does not seem to be good for the stability of the silo. Talk about misplaying her cards, by the way. Billings is trying to get Juliet's attention. And she just turns off her radio. <laughs> you can't be the acting sheriff in the middle of a powder keg there within the silo and just be like, you know what? I'm going to mute all contacts right now. <laughs> By the time she comes back, everything's over. And she's like, what happened? <laughs> this brings up that idea once again is what is the purpose of the sheriff? She's just one person, but it's more about the symbolism, right? Society exists. We have these people in these roles to create the illusion of order, that there is recourse if something bad happens to you, that somebody is minding the shop. And of course, whether you have three figureheads in office or not, doesn't really dictate whether a society is functional or not, but it does give you the semblance of order. And if there's some subtext here in the show, that is definitely one of the themes here of how you just dress people up the right way and then people feel like, hey, I'm in a society so someone has a plan and I'm part of that plan and how that just gives people a sense of calm and maybe on the negative side, apathy. But when that facade of order starts to fall down, chaos can spread very quickly. Billings at least has covered for Juliet when Bernard comes and asks questions. Billings finally has a real heart to heart here with her and says all the things I've just been saying. You're neglecting your duties. I don't know what's going on with you. I know you have a personal agenda, but... Real people are, can get hurt here if you don't do your job. And she basically says to him, look, you can have this job. I'm really here for one reason. I want to get to the bottom of this George Wilkins murder. I think it's attached to everything. And she's right, by the way. It's, of course, related to the murders of Ruth and Sam Marnes and Trumbull, that spy who was thrown over 
the railings last week. And of course, everything's even circling back with Allison going out to clean with the Gloria connection and through her, even the sheriff's departure in the first place. And Billings helps her out. Maybe he just figures if she walks away from the position, he can take over and fix things. And maybe he does have some sympathy for her as well. But he mentions that the relic that they found in Trumbull's apartment could be a way to reopen George's murder case. On the way back to her apartment, she goes by the cafeteria again, runs into Lucas, this stargazer who I suspected might be a spy. Now I'm starting to think he serves a different purpose here in the show. He's a systems analyst in IT. So maybe that's how he's going to tie into the end game here in the season. He also, of course, has feelings for her and she does as well. That's why she keeps looking for him. But when he tries to make a move on her, she pulls away somewhat hesitantly, I'd say, but probably still smarting from George's death, probably feeling his loss, but also feeling that betrayal. She trusted someone. She feels like he used her and maybe just given all that, doesn't really want to trust anybody else right now. She must be super paranoid of everybody at this point too. I mean, I'm suspecting this guy of being a spy at this point. Juliet and Bernard meet. And I was pretty certain he was the guy pulling the strings here. And maybe he still is. Maybe he's playing possum here. But he mentions the fact that he was threatened by Judge Meadows because he backed the sheriff in that previous conversation where Sims was there and seemed very annoyed by Bernard siding with uh, Nichols. Sims had informed Bernard that Meadows is going to remove Bernard and she has the power to do so via the pact. Bernard mentions that he tries to stay out of the way of judicial but he's afraid that if they depose him, they'll get access to his servers. And apparently there's information, there's communications on those servers, everybody's messages to each other. And he's afraid of what they might do with that information. After all of these checkpoints along the way, Juliet does finally make it to Meadow's apartment. If you recall, <laughs> this has been quite a trip for her. She's been <laughs> with all these delays, but she was trying to get Meadows to, just to allow her to remove the medication from Gloria so that she could question her. Julie gets in delivering her breakfast. Apparently, this was Billing's suggestion. When she finally gets inside, she realizes that Meadows has an apartment full of relics. She just wants to question Gloria, undrugged. And she says, I'll be out of your hair. I'm out of here. I'll be back in mechanical in a week. I just want to solve this crime. And this is where we have confirmation that Sims is really the guy pulling the strings here, at least when it comes to Meadows. She's just a scapegoat here. She's allowed to have these creature comforts and have these relics in her apartment. But I'm sure if she steps out of line, they'll have someone come and investigate her and find an apartment full of relics. She can easily be deposed and easily be controlled by Sims and maybe whoever's pulling Sims' strings. I mean, at this point, it has to be Sims or Bernard Holland because they can't introduce some unknown person at this point so late in the game. Everyone else is dead <laughs> or alibied in some way. Now that she knows that Sims is probably really controlling Meadows, and Meadows really does not have the power she needs to have Gloria released. She does have an alternate path. Her dad, the doctor, would have access to the medical facility as well. She goes and sees him for apparently what we think is the first time in possibly decades. He actually wants to spend time with her. She misreads this and thinks that he does not and says, I'll be out of your hair immediately. You just have to help me on this with this one thing. But actually, because he does want to spend time with her, he does assist. Interesting to see all of his behavior here. He obviously knows a lot about how the controls in the silo work. He assumes that they're being monitored and warns her that her investigation is putting her in a precarious situation. Pete gets into the long-term care center and wheels Gloria out into the nursery. 
where they have some privacy there at night. Gloria's sedatives are going to take too long to wear off. So Juliet pressures her dad into giving her an antidote, which may have side effects. And they do. They give her seizures. And Juliet appears to know how to deal with a seizure. This apparently relates back to her brother who had seizures when he was younger. Gloria does eventually wake up, as you would assume. By the way, the surveillance team has lost Juliet. This is an interesting detail. It's convenient for the plotting, but it is interesting because it does ring true. That, of course, they aren't manufacturing new cameras, and technology fails all the time. So as cameras fail, they move them from one location to another. You assume there are always some top suspects that are being surveilled constantly, and over time, there are a lot of blind spots, and one of them happens to be the route that Juliet took after she picked up uh, Gloria. Sims, of course, is furious and wants them to keep just going from camera to camera until they find her. When Gloria finally starts getting questioned, all of this maybe takes a little too long to get going, to be honest with you. She doesn't trust Juliet at first, doesn't trust her uniform, and is suspicious of everyone at this point. She recognizes Peter, blaming him for the fact she was never allowed to have children. She keeps saying, he works for them. Peter does leave the room. And when Juliet shows Gloria the book, this suddenly triggers a huge information dump, <laughs> which sets up the finale of the season and conveniently ties up a lot of loose strings up until here. Maybe a little too conveniently, but... It gets the job done. We find out that she was part of this organization known as the Flame Keepers, of course, the title of the episode. They were in charge of remembering and preserving the history of everything that happened in the past, keeping these relics and telling stories, I assume, amongst themselves. The silo, for whatever reason, still unknown to me, honestly, one of the big mysteries remaining here. The powers that be believed that people knowing about the history of the outside world would endanger their power or the survival of the silo, would everybody want to leave? But then wouldn't they die unless the outside world maybe is not toxic? Many questions here still remaining on this particular point. I mean, honestly, with this whole entire series, other than who's actually doing the killing, <laughs> this fundamental revelation here is probably what we have all assumed from the very beginning. Really, the question is why do it in the first place? A weird detail here that the powers that be have been Putting something into the water to make people's memories fade. Of all the silly plot developments here, this is probably the silliest. How do they control the degree of the memory loss? Is it only memories from a while back? I assume they can't control exactly what memories are lost. So I am curious as to how this memory erasing chemical works, and we may not get a satisfying answer to that. What I'm curious about there is when they're saying they're losing their older memories, it goes back to the very first scene here in this episode. Does that mean that they are forgetting the stories that their parents told them? Or does it mean that they're forgetting the events of their youth? And is the risk of the relics in triggering those memories? Not of stories. Because I mean, you could just say, hey, grandma told me a story. What does that mean? Of actual memories. Because that, of course, could be much riskier. So there's another mystery still that I'm still very curious about. We also have a very sad story here that Gloria was very much in love with her husband, but since they were not able to have children, she left him and wanted him to hate her. So it's really tragic when you think about the decisions that she must have made. Her husband runs into her later in life and can't even remember her. And this is exactly how she wanted it, even though she still loved him. And she dedicated herself to being a flame keeper and apparently was friends with Juliet's mother. Another reason that she's sharing all this information with her. Her mother's name was Hannah. 
By the way, next week's episode called Hannah. So we're going to find out a lot more about Juliet's mom next week. This book, by the way, had been given to George's mother, which of course is why George's name is in it as well, and how it ended up with George's ex-girlfriend. And Anne Anne had been friendly with Hannah. Another interesting mystery here, Gloria mentions that she was always surprised that they allowed Hannah to have children, two children, of course, at least that we're aware of. And she mentions that Juliet, Hannah was not a flamekeeper, but she had the same curiosity. I'm wondering now if she was a spy, maybe. That would be an interesting twist here that her mother was working to keep tabs on these flame keepers and maybe was seduced by their vision and their, their mission. And I wonder if Peter knows all of the details, what she was up to and whether that be as a flame keeper or as a spy for the silo. We get towards the end of the episode here. Juliet honestly is giving her dad a really hard time. I know he hasn't done a great job of staying in touch with her. So granted, yes, <laughs> not great on his part there. But she attacks him with suppressing the reproduction there at the silo. He tells her a couple of things. One, of course, I would assume by default that he really had no choice. If these people can make you disappear, if they can make your family disappear, if they can kill you if they want to, I mean, how much choice do you really have? And second of all, that he was doing it for a good cause. There was a genetic disease, perhaps the one that we've seen here afflicting Billings, that was going to run rampant through the population if they didn't control who was allowed to reproduce. Yet another unanswered question, is that what they're still doing? Are they giving you the illusion that you'll get a chance to reproduce? If that's the case, why not just admit to people that there is this genetic risk? Most people would not take that risk. But maybe knowing that is too depressing for people to accept. So just giving them the hope that, they, well, maybe better luck next time keeps them from getting overly depressed. That's a possibility. Another possibility is that it did begin benevolently, and now they're doing more control of the population. Once again, unanswered at this point. Juliet finally does pop up on one of these cameras yet again. Juliet has a story. Gloria was found by one of the deputies just wandering around the hallway. Sims is practically at the end of his rope here, but still does not pull the trigger to arrest her. Not sure why. Maybe she's too high profile because she's the sheriff. And as we get to the very end of the episode here, Gloria wants to see the book one last time. This is back in her room. She mentions to Juliet that her flowers are gone. The sheriff had put them right in front of the mirror. Juliet suddenly pieces together all the mysteries of the show up until this point. The note from the sheriff to double the flowers by the mirror, because of course he knew that he was being watched. And even remembering the camera, he's, she's not identified it yet as a camcorder that she gave to her friend to repair. And suddenly realizing, I guess in this moment, that it's a camera. They have cameras behind those mirrors. She doesn't know what a camera is, of course. Well, I guess they do know what a camera is, right? They have one outside. You have to clean it. Yes. So they do know what a camera is. I think she's just finally realizing, wait, of course, they should have thought this a long time ago. Honestly, if you can have a camera on the outside of the silo, you can have cameras on the inside too, people. Juliet realizing this now covers the mirror, which of course (laughs) immediately alerts the surveillance team that she knows the cameras are there, which now does trigger (laughs) Sims to send people in there to arrest her. But before we get there, Gloria does mention that Holston had been very curious about the air vents. And of course, Juliet knows that he likes to hide things in the air vents. One of the satisfying things here in this show has been this mystery aspect to it, not only who the killer is, but also the mystery of leaving one little breadcrumb for the next person to find. It's very cloak and dagger. It's very much like a a spy movie. And I do find that aspect entertaining. And here's the next breadcrumb. He leaves 
the folder in the air vent in his apartment, puts the flowers in front of the mirror and hides it via the fish line up in the air vent. And of course, has done the same thing here in Gloria's room. So none of these things individually will lead you to find the hard drive, which is what is socked away inside that air vent. But of course, collectively, it leads us to the hard drive. And of course, Gloria tells Juliet here that now she is the last flamekeeper. And we hear her ask, do you know why your mother killed herself? I'd love to know why. Maybe we'll find out next week. And if she tells her, we don't hear it because the surveillance team's henchmen have arrived and they want to know where Juliet is. And Gloria just pretends to be zonked out. And that's where the episode ends. Juliet is on the run. They can't be too far behind her. I mean, they have the silo surveilled. She's going to pop up on a camera somewhere. She has a hard drive. She needs someone to be able to access it. But then even if they find the schematics and other images there on the hard drive, who can distribute this? The clock is ticking, honestly. And she probably has relatively few places she can hide. And that's where we have things for next week. So I would expect for a show that's been relatively slow-paced, we may have a pretty action-packed episode next week. And I'm looking forward to it. I just hope that this season doesn't end on a cliffhanger. That's been a pet peeve of mine recently. No wrap-up at the end of a season, just cliffhanger. And by the way, if I'm not annoyed with that with TV shows, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, we get a cliffhanger ending for the Spider-Man movie, no less. All right, that's the recap and review. Stay tuned next week. I can't wait for this, by the way. Five episodes of Black Mirror. Can I review them all by next week's episode? Maybe. We'll have to wait and see. They're available on Thursday, so I'll have Thursday and Friday to watch, and then also get the silo review in there. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Uh, maybe if I delay release like I did today to Saturday, I'll have plenty of time to do it. Anyway, stay tuned for that. And do expect the Monday episode. What I'm be covering there, I don't even know. Maybe the first two episodes of The Idol, which I have watched. That's a mixed bag, to say the least. Not sure yet. <laughs> but definitely Black Mirror and The Silo next week. Stay tuned. If you'd like to support the show, give us a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice. Send us an email, need some introduction at gmail.com. If you did happen to check out the Black Mirror episode, what's your ranking of the seasons of the individual episodes? Do you have some favorites? Send us an email, need some introduction at gmail.com. And of course, if you're enjoying this coverage, please recommend this to anybody else who might be watching these shows or any of the other shows we've covered before. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Until next time.